Bay Hills Community Church is pleased to have you with us as we continue our series, Big Faith Questions. We've been looking at some of the big and tough questions that come up often and for which people expect us as Christians to have an answer. Today, guest speaker Raleigh Galgan has us considering the question, Can I really trust the Bible? Raleigh helps us address this question on a purely intellectual basis so that we can overcome mental roadblocks that keep us from moving forward. Listen as we're reminded that our minds are the goalkeepers of our hearts. Morning, Bay Hill. You know, I'll give you my name. It's Raleigh. I'm insecure. I like a name tag. I came in this morning. I saw the name tags there. And I said, hey, where's my name tag? And they said, ah, oh, these are for only the people that tithe. I go, oh, wow. So, hey, I'm glad you're all good givers here this morning. I see your name tags. The big question, I'm really excited to be here. I want to celebrate with the K Club. Uh, but I remember when you guys were part of the C Club, that is 100 and under. And, uh, you know, it's so great to see what God is doing at Bay Hills and through the generation of location and walking by faith. And we've been praying for you throughout the district uh, obviously, God is sovereign. He's in control. He knows what he's got for you. And we can't wait to see God bring you to that new facility over there and visited where you are uh, over on, you know, whatever the name of the road is there. But I've been to the church and I'm looking forward to the new one. Well, the big question, can I really, can I really trust the Bible? You know, two weeks ago, Pastor uh, Dave talked about the proof that he has risen. And I'm sure he went through some of the historical facts, some of the evidence that was there. Last week, he talked about that, you know, Jesus is the only way. In other words, world, all world religions don't lead to the same place. I'm assuming he went there. Today, I, I want to talk about, you know, can I really trust the Bible? And so the purpose of my message is to do just like starting point, start a conversation, uh, you know, about the Bible. I'm not here to pressure you or... Or obviously you couldn't make anybody believe in the Bible, but I do want to promote your faith. Uh, I I can't produce it. Only the Holy Spirit can generate faith in us. And that's a God thing that has to happen with the Spirit of God in each of our hearts. But I want to address some maybe intellectual, like Pastor Dave said, head issues. Some of the things that may be roadblocks or, you know, I may want to try see if I can help you overcome some mental hurdles that keep you from moving forward and considering the claims of Christianity. See, our minds are the gatekeepers of our hearts. I mean, there's only 18 inches there. But if it doesn't get through the head, it's not going to touch the heart. Notice every feeling you have starts with a thought. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, then this message and this whole series can affirm what you believe. And, and it can also give you some further facts uh, for your faith. Maybe you didn't know them, and but it You've already taken the step of faith, but it's good to know that there are reasons why your faith is reliable. And it may give you some pathways to pursue to further, you know, firm up your faith. If you're an agnostic, that's cool. An agnostic is one that just doesn't have enough knowledge to make a decision. And I respect that. I respect that a lot of us have been there. You know, we were God-fears, we grew up in the church, but we never crossed the line of faith because we, our head, as sometimes we get educated, sometimes we hear conflicting things and I go, well, I don't know what to believe. And so, you know, you're, you're an agnostic and that's cool. This series can be helpful to you. 
in your search, if you're searching, and usually if you're agnostic, you want to be searching. You just don't want to say, I just don't have enough knowledge. Well, do something about it, okay? Pursue it. Push it. If it's not true, then walk away from it. But if it's true, you don't want to miss it. And so I want to invite you, just like God did, come, let us reason together. That's what this series is all about. It's about reasoning. And if you're an atheist and you're closed-minded, I just want to shoot out a warning here, okay? Why you're listening, why are you here, maybe here for a friend, who knows why you're, you're within the sound of my voice today. Uh, but I want to say this, that if you're closed to the logical reasons for faith, then this series may not be good for you because it may just simply firm up your resistance or what, what the Bible talks about, harden your heart to the claims of Christ. I'm going to be taking the shotgun approach. I hope that's not you, though. And, and, and at any moment, God can soften that heart. And, and that's God's job, okay? As I approach this, I'm not going to do a targeted thing. I'm shooting the shotgun out, all right? And, and I'm going to try to give you a reasonable answer at many different levels for the big question, can I really trust the Bible? And here's my plan. My plan is to avoid circular reasoning. In logic, circular reasoning is, is to quote the Bible and say, the Bible says this, therefore it's true. No, that's like working within the Bible. We're going to go outside the Bible for proof of the reliability of scriptures. I do have a couple premises that I want to lay down for you. I have some prejudices, okay? You need to know this, obviously. I'm a pastor, and so obviously my first premise is I believe the scriptures are inspired by God. I believe they're inerrant in the originals. And I believe they're infallible in all they teach or intend to teach. Just as 2 Timothy says, all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. I believe that. But my second premise is this. Every promise or prophecy from God in the scriptures will accomplish the purpose for which it was revealed and recorded. Jesus said this about the word of God. He's talking about the Hebrew text, which uses the vowels or little dots. Actually, the Hebrew text, when it has the vowels there, it looks like a chicken got on some ink and walked on some paper. That's what it looks like. So he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, those are the vowels, shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Isaiah, speaking on half of God, said this, So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth, God speaking, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And I believe that. But here's the big question. Can I really trust the Bible? Pause me with me to pray for just a minute, will you? God, may the meditation of my heart and the words of my heart be acceptable in your sight and activated by the Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like to do is I'd like to give you some reasons that the scriptures are reliable. Here's the first reason. The scriptures are historically more reliable than any other ancient document that you could ever pick up. 
Now, if history is important to you and you're a student of history, you believe that there are manuscripts and historical documents that do relay the past to the present, then this is important to you. Any history book you you pick up is not as reliable, ancient history, as the scriptures. Written over a 600-year span, the Bible is unique in its continuity of historical documents. It's written over 60 generations, when it started to when it ended in 90 AD. It's written by 40 plus authors, not just one, 40. Written in three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe. It was written in three languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Its subject matter includes hundreds of controversial subjects, yet the authors, catch this, the authors, all 60 of them, spoke with continuity from Genesis to Revelation about one unfolding story. That is God's redemption for mankind. The Bible is contained in the consistent canon of 66 books, 39 Old, 27 New Testament. The word canon is a Greek word. It means read. Read is a plant. But it was a measuring stick in ancient times, you know, a reed would measure things. And so really it's a metaphor. The canon is a metaphor, that which measures up. In other words, how they evaluated what books are contained in those 66 books that we call the Old and the New Testament. When the early church fathers got together, because there were a lot of extant or available books out there that claimed to be written by prophets and apostles... They had five principles of criteria that they measured them by. The first question they asked themselves is this. Is it authoritative? The sub-question is, did it come from the hand of God? Does this book come with a divine, thus saith the Lord? Now, obviously, that's subjectivism. In the test for truth, that's subjectivism. It's not objectivism. It's like, did they feel the presence of God as they read it? Now, you and I, as followers of Jesus, we know what they're talking about. Because the Spirit of God speaks to us through the Word. And, and God God communicates. But some somebody outside of that reasoning would say, well, that's absurd. But it is one of the tests they use. Is it prophetic? And the tests for prophecy were very strict in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 20. You know the test for a prophet to make sure that a prophet was a prophet. They're very, very strict. And so they asked, was it written by a man of God? And if you are a man of God and a prophet, there were criteria that the Old Testament saints held you to. They asked the third question, is it authentic? The early church fathers, they had this attitude when they got together to decide which was canon. If in doubt, throw it out. If there's anything at all in this manuscript that we're reading that is claiming to be one of the prophet's writings or one of the apostles' writings, but if we're in doubt, we just throw it out. And obviously, that's fideism. You know, fideism is it feels, it doesn't feel right. And that's a test for truth. It's not the only test for truth. But that's the test that they used as a measuring stick. And then they asked, is it dynamic? Dynamic, Does is it moving? Does it make a difference? Did it come with life transforming power of God? And that's pragmatism. Does it work? 
And, and you know, anybody that's in an AA program, you saw CR there, the first thing is uh, they say they're powerless. And the second thing is they, they look to a higher power. And that is they believe there's a higher power that can make a difference in their life when they're powerless. And you and I, we are pragmatic because we say, Jesus changed my life. That's pragmatic. It worked in my life. That's all I can tell you. And that's an argument for truth. It's not the only one. And it doesn't maybe do much for some people that need to have head issues going on. But when the Spirit of God moves and changes your heart and changes your behavior and changes your life, then you want to stand on that. He changed my life. Amen? Amen. And then they ask this. Was it received? Was it collected? Was it read? Was it used? By the people of God that were concurrent to the times. And that's objectivism. In other words, did they believe that indeed this was the word of God? And did they hold on to it? And did they practice it? And did they communicate it? And then when the New Testament, 27 books, they use this one additional criteria. In, in addition to all five, they added one more. They said the writer must have access to apostolic, first-hand witness of the life, ministry, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, to be a writer in the New Testament, you had to either be there and witness the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, or you had to get your information from one that was there to witness the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Those are the tests. In fact, when you come to Acts 21, I don't think I have it up there, but in Acts 21, after they're replacing Judas, one of the disciples that betrayed Jesus, they replaced him. The criteria were, were laid out in Acts 21, 22, and they said, we, uh, therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he, Jesus, was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. In other words, that was the criteria to become an apostle. The Bible is unique in its survival as a historical document. If history matters to you, then you ought to stand up and take note of the historical reliability of the Scriptures because any ancient document you pick up pales in comparison to its reliability. Look at this chart. Now, this is a chart of ancient documents, New Testament, Cedars writing, Plato, Aristotle. A lot of people philosophically like to quote Aristotle. They like to quote Plato, uh, you know. And, and, and so you look at their documents, the dates they were written, uh, and then the, the date that copied of the manuscripts that, that were found and discovered. And notice the gap between the original writing and the copies that were found. You know, the, the New Testament, two to three hundred years. But look at Aristotle that, you know, everybody quotes Aristotle. Fourteen hundred year gap between the original and the copies. I mean, that's a millennium. And yet it's history. It's reliable. And there's only five manuscripts. Look at the next slide here. Just think of the comparison. Scott, go hit that. There's five thousand manuscripts, ten manuscripts. Now, if we were to scatter the New Testament out here on the floor, in fact, I was going to do this as a learning activity. I was going to have you all take a piece of paper. I was going to do 50 of the New Testament and, you know, five of Aristotle. And I was going to have you try to put together the original document that I cut up and gave you manuscript pieces of. And just imagine, you know, if you had 5,000 New Testament, 
five Aristotle, what chance of getting back to the original has a greater chance? It's the one with the 5,000. And there's a science to it. Go to the next slide, Scott, please. This is the science. There is a real science in studying manuscripts. And you start with, like, say, the 5,000 on the baseline, and then you look at the manuscripts and see which words and which words are cut out and what's missing, but you piece the 5,000 together, and then you go to the next level, and you see all of these have all these components in it, and then you go to the next level, all these have these components, some of them have some discrepancies here, then you go to the last two, and you go to the, and obviously, they all line up, and you find the originals. It's a science. And it's very compelling if you study the science. And then you still say that even though we don't have the originals and we have a very close to the original, we don't have the originals. And even in the Bible, there are, when you read from Genesis to Revelation, when you read the Bible and people say, well, you know, there's some discrepancies in there or there's some difficult passages. Why did God do this? Why did God say this? I, you know, if that's the God that did this or say this, you know, how can I ever want to follow him? And, and I'll say, yes, there are some apparent discrepancies. Apparent meaning I, you may not have enough knowledge. I may not have enough knowledge. I can't explain to you why there's other discrepancies or there's the difficulties. There is a book, though, written about the difficulties of the Bible. Dr. Gleason Archer, back in the 70s, in the 60s, he wrote for a magazine called Decision Magazine. That's Billy Graham's magazine. Dr. Archer was, uh, you know, he studied at Harvard and Yale, and, and he studied, he taught at seminaries on the West Coast. He taught at Trinity, where David and I had him as a teacher. I think he was still around when David was there. I was a little bit ahead of David. He's a very humble, godly man, very intelligent, spoke multiple, multiple languages, and but he was very humble. He drove a 67 VW Bug. I got to know Dr. Archer because I'd work on his car because as a professor, he didn't make a lot of money, okay? And I'm a mechanic by trade. And so I remember when, when he would write, every month a decision magazine would come out and somebody would throw the hardest question they could throw at him. And with all of his knowledge, all of his wisdom, all of his language abilities and understanding of the Bible, he would give a a response to the question. And he dealt with a huge amount of discrepancies and difficulties. I have a copy of his hard copy there. But if you have it, just get online and look under Gleason Archer, Difficulties in the Bible, when somebody asks you that question, so that you have a reason for what you believe. Now, The second reason that I want to talk about, not just about the historicity of it, but I want to talk that you can rely on the scriptures because they're archaeologically reliable. What's archaeology? It's when you dig and you find stuff. It's when you go down to see historically what happened. One of the greatest archaeologists of ancient times, Albright was his name, he wrote this concerning the accuracy of the scriptures as a result of archaeology. In other words, they'd read the Bible and then they would dig. And some people would say historically, no, the Bible can't be right there. And then they would dig and they'd find it right. And here's what he wrote. He said, new discoveries continue to confirm the historical accuracy of the Bible. Aside from a few diehard, um, uh, diehards among older scholars, there is scarcely a single b- biblical historian who has not been impressed by the rapid accumulation of data supporting the substantial historicity of the ancient writings. Now, 
The number of archaeological discoveries based upon the historical, just looking at the Bible historically, in other words, the Bible talks about a battle here. The Bible talks about a town here. The Bible talks about a, 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 a temple here. Wherever the Bible talks about it, there have been hundreds and hundreds of discoveries that right where it said it was, that's where it is. Now, there was a time that people mock Joshua. You know, Joshua supposedly went around the walls of Jericho and they said, fiction. That certainly isn't reliable. Beginning in the early 1900s, archaeologists began to dig in the spot as they calculated it from Joshua's stories. And then in the 1930s, they continued the digging. And then in the 1950s, they continued the digging. And then finally, Kathy Kenyon, who studied all the previous diggings and excavations, she validated without a doubt that the biblical claim of the book of Joshua was true. And they found the wall of Jericho crumbled, just as described in the Bible. Now, I'm not an archaeologist. And I'm limited in my knowledge of archaeology. Maybe you're an archaeologist here. Can you, though, show me one place where the Bible is not valid in what it says and intends to teach about archaeology and history? I would love to know that. Because in my mind, it's all true or it's not true. And yes, there may be some apparent discrepancies, or maybe in time they will dig more and find it like they did the walls of Jericho. Reason three. Are the scriptures reliable? Well, here's a third reason I want you to hold on to. The scriptures are scientifically reliable. And a lot of times we put this wall up, you know, because we live in a scientific age and we go, let's not talk about science. You know, let's not talk about faith and science. Yeah, I mean, you live close to Berkeley here, you know what I mean? And, and, and you talk about it and you'd have, you know, hordes jump on you on that. Well, let me just share a, a glimpse. I mean, Pastor Dave is going to go into evolution and I'm sure he's going to talk a lot about science. And, and are the scriptures reliable? But let me just talk biologically about one simple principle. It's called the principle of irreducible complexity. What that means is that something is so simple you can't reduce it anymore. And here's the other thing. There's a bacterial flagellum motor, and it points that it can't evolve but to intelligent design. Now, I'm giving you the website there. You go to YouTube, you watch this 14 minute and 55 second, and it's done very well. It's part of an intelligent design series that I took my grandkids through. I pay them to learn, okay? You know, I pay them to watch videos. I pay them to read books as a stipend, and then we discuss them together. And this is done really good. If you ever want to see a series on intelligent design, you know, I can refer that to you. And the animation and the, the video is awesome, along with who they interview. But in this... What it shows is that this flagellum motor is a motor. I'm a mechanic by trade. Combustible engines. You need three things for an engine to run. When a car isn't running, you've got to ask these basic questions. Does it have fuel? Does it have air? Does it have spark? It ain't going to run without any of those. So a motor has to have everything necessary to run. A flagellum motor is a motor. It cannot evolve. Its irreducible complexity doesn't allow it to evolve. It has to be designed. Very compelling argument. One that is very hard to respond to. How in the heck does a motor evolve? It either has it or it doesn't run. So, geologically, 
the geological strata. We, we know that there's different strata in the earth. And we, we look at those and we, we, we say geologically, that's how old this is. That's how old this is. That's how old this is. And so the Bible's got to be wrong. It can't be a young earth. It can't be four to 6,000 years. Just from the simple fact of geological strata. It takes so long for the, for the, the, the earth to crush and for the fossils and for the fuel and the minerals and all that. And, and I say that's true unless you have a flood. That puts a huge amount of pressures on the earth. And just like coal can be changed through pressure and heat, so can the earth's strata be changed by a flood that is global and waves on the earth. And again, I'm shotgunning. I'm just mentioning some things here. Obviously, there's deeper discussions to go in here. Trust me, we don't have the time to do it. They're valid, they're worthy, and I'm just opening up the conversation. But you need to have the conversation. You don't need to accept redacted history that only gives you part of the story and not rest of the story. Scientifically, the science revolution, like somehow there was the dark age and there were the medieval periods. And obviously the church was very involved in those things. And so there was a revolution that came and rebelled against all the flat earth theories that were going on. But here's the truth of it. Contrary to secular redaction of history, You won't get this in most secular universities because it's redacted. And it's redacted based upon social justice, not upon the rest of the story. I would invite you to read Rodney Stark. He's a historian at Baylor University. He writes How the West Won. In fact, that's one of the books that I read with all my grandkids. I got 14. We do it, you know, video. Those that live in Portland, 11 of them live within a mile and privilege. So we do book club and I pay them 20 bucks a chapter. They make good money. Good money. I don't mind. My wife and I don't mind giving them that money as long as they do the homework. And they read history from a different perspective and they get to hear the rest of the story. And what they will hear is is that the Dark Ages really weren't that dark. There was all kinds of innovation going on in the Dark Ages. And, and science didn't begin with the scientific revolution after the dark and the medieval ages. In fact, listen to what Rodney Stark wrote about it in his book, How the West Won. But in fact, the great scientific achievements of the 16th and the 17th century, supposedly the science revolution, were produced by a group of scholars, notably for their piety or their faith, who were based in Christian universities. All the universities were Christian In the medieval age, they were all founded on Christian principles. It's unbelievable, the statistics. And whose brilliant achievements were carefully built upon by an invaluable legacy of centuries of brilliant scholastic scholarship. The church was the foundation of science. Don't let anybody tell you any different or you don't know the facts. Reason four. The scriptures are prophetically reliable. Now, this isn't so logical, this isn't so lineal, but it's prophetic. And this is probably the most powerful, persuasive argument there is. The scriptures are reliable because the Bible said this was going to happen. And here's where the dating of the Bible is very critical, because critics of it will say, well, that happened after the event. And and this is where, knowing the date of the Bible, that that it was spoken 1,400 years before that event prophetically took place is very critical. 
If you want to understand prophecy, because it's very different, let me just recommend a few books. I have copies of some of them over there. They're not for taking, but just to look at the cover, okay? But David Jeremiah, pastor in Southern California, is a great writer. And he is a great student of end times, or what we call eschatology and prophecy. He, I read this book with, with a uh, group, about six of my grandkids this summer, up in Tahoe. It's called Agents of the Apocalypse. And here's how he writes. And I had my 18-year-old granddaughters. I had 16, 15, and 14. And it's written in a novel and then a, f- a fact base after it. So the first part of the chapter is a storyline. And this one is a love story in the Agents of the Apocalypse about the book of Revelation. And then the second part of the story, then he then applies and reads the scripture that describes the storyline you just read. And so they're hanging on. They love the storyline. And so they're, 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 they know how it all takes place in, in a story. And then they get to read the scripture. So then it all comes to light to them. Another book that we're reading right now, Agents of Babylon, which is about Daniel. And then now the prophecies of Daniel 7 through 9. And then another book about uh, prophecy that is good is, is Joel Rosenberg. He's an excellent writer. Uh, an epicenter is one that I'm referring to today, but he's got two new books. They're historical novels, The Third Target and The First Hostage, and they are suspenseful talking about what's going on in the Middle East right now. So read those if you're a student of it, but consider the current, listen to this, the current reasonableness of prophecies of the book of Daniel and Revelation saying they were written when the Bible says they were written, that even a hundred years ago, they were perceived by critics of the Bible and secularists as outrageous. If we were to go back in time in the time machine, and we were to open the book of Revelation to the 13th chapter, we were to open the book of Daniel to the 7th chapter, and you'd read that there's a future for Israel. People would laugh at you, Israel. They were gone in 8070. I mean, it's been how long since there's been a nation called Israel? They would laugh. Or, or, or not only the existence of Israel, but to say, and then there's going to be a war in the Middle East with Israel at the center of it, with all their enemies, like it says in Ezekiel 36 and 39. It's like there's not even a nation. And then all you got to do is open the Wall Street Journal this week. And now, you know, the Wall Street Journal is... It had an article there in, in, entitled, Iran will continue missile program. In other words, they're arming their missiles. The fear is, is they'll put the nuclear bombs that, you know, many believe are continuing to be made, but they're continuing to make the missiles and test it. And now we're worried about that. Don't you think that will cause World War III? Or, or take back 100 years ago and, you know, as siloed as we were in the world, you know, I mean, we, we barely knew the news of Europe because a ship would have to bring the news. And, you know, a hundred years ago, could we ever think of global governance? We can hardly do it in our community. Just think trying to do a global government like a G21 or, or United Security Council. And yet we have those things today that they have knowledge and things that go on. And, and we see global governments rising, especially around the one issue of climate change. Or what about a global currency? Could you imagine a hundred years ago how they'd laugh at you to say, oh, we're going to have one money. Yeah, we're going to have e-commerce. We're going to have a cashless society. Oh, yeah, they're going to put something on the back of your hand. 
And, you know, we couldn't even imagine scanning the barcode then. And now you've seen some of those, I think, credit card things where they take the guy's head and scan it across the scanner, you know, because he's, he's got the barcode there. I mean, like, whoa, that's prophetic. Or, or take this one. There's no nation of Israel a hundred years ago. And yet the prophecy of Ezekiel 36.11 pictured Israel when they were dispersed and they were living in captivity in Babylon, like they're even going to be a nation again. Who could ever dream that except the prophet Jeremiah? And then, you know, Ezekiel says this, I will increase the number of people and animals living on you and they will be fruitful and become numerous. And he's saying to this to people who are dispersed, who are in captivity, and I will settle people on you as in the past and will make you more prosper more than you were before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. More money and wealth than we had in the day of Solomon? Yeah. Well, first of all, they became a nation in 1948. But how are they going to become wealthy? They're very innovative and they have great agriculture. But where's the wealth going to come from? Well, Dr. LaHaye, who is 89 now, and he wrote in the 1970s, he, he wrote about end times. He wrote a book, Coming Peace in the Middle East. And he speculated on some possible ways that that prophecy of Isaiah could come true and that Israel would become peaceful and more prosperous. And here's he speculated this. He speculated about Israel. He said, suppose that a pool of oil greater than anything in the Arabia were discovered by the Jews. Just think if they found oil. I mean, they're in the Middle East. You'd think they'd have some oil, huh? Well, people laughed at Lahaye because of the irony of Israel's lack of oil, lack of gas. In fact, the late Israel Prime Minister, Golden Meir, made a joke about it. She said this, Moses dragged us for 40 years through the desert to bring us to the one place in the Middle East where there was no oil. It's a joke. But guess what? In the fall of 2002, oil in Israel was no longer a joke. It wasn't a pipe dream. It became a reality. Associated Press reported this in 2002. An Israeli oil company has made the largest fine in the history of the country, a reserve of 100 million barrels of oil. Two weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, ripped from the headlines. March 28th. Against offshore gas deal is the heading. In total, Israel sits on a field with more than 32 trillion cubic feet of gas. That is a lot of natural gas. The Israeli leader said the development of the gas reserves would enable Israel, catch this, to develop economic ties with countries such as Jordan, Egypt, Cyprus, Turkey, Greece, because they all need the gas. A diplomatic boom and a critical measure of national security. Now, those two gas fields out in the Mediterranean off the shores of Israel are called Leviathan, because that's huge, and Tamar. Now, let me give you the fifth reason. And I am running out of time, okay? But they said, you know, we don't have a service after this, so I'm going to borrow a little time, okay? (laughs) I told Pastor Dave, if I finish short sometime, can I bank it and get it back the next time I come back? Okay, so anyways, the fifth reason is that the Scriptures are reliable. They are ethically and morally consistent without hypocrisy. One of the greatest accusations against Christians are we're hypocrites. And I want to address that because that's huge with the social justice thing in our day and age. See, contrary to the redaction of history that is critical of Christianity, 
Because they want to go back in history and they want to redact it. That's why it's important that your kids, before they go to college, see the rest of the story and know Western history from somebody besides someone that's got a social, issue, a social justice agenda, okay? Regarding the criticisms, let's take the hardest one. You want to talk about Christianity? You go over to Berkeley, you start talking about Christianity. If they don't want to talk about it, the first hurdle they'll throw out is, well, what about the Crusades? Why would I have me Christian? And the horrors of the Crusades. Doesn't that just shut you down? Our president did it not long ago. He threw out the Crusades. Well, let me just put it in context for you, can I? You know what's going on now with ISIS or ISIL, Islamic State, Iraq and Syria or Levant? They are creating genocide, right? It was just declared by our Secretary of State, finally, you know, about a month ago. The Yazidis, a few years ago, remember they were, they were trapped on a hill? They were all Christians, remember that? And we finally sent in some bombs and we rescued them. Right now, you know, the Coptic Christians are almost wiped out of Egypt because of the Arab Spring. And remember, you know, that was great and all that, but who are the ones getting destroyed? All the Christians? Well, you understand that we now want to help the Christians that are being beheaded and losing their property or having to pay a, a fee so their family doesn't get crushed and there's that genocide. Well, if you understand that and you believe there's a place for self-defense and protecting the rights of people who are being slaughtered by those that are Islamic terrorists, then maybe you can understand what happened in the days of Thomas Jefferson there's a book out called Thomas Jefferson and the Tripoli Pirates because what has happened there today is not new. It happened in the late 1700s when America was just a nation and Washington was the president and Thomas Jefferson was the Secretary of State because the Tripoli Pirates, who were Islamic terrorists, were traveling the high seas and they were terrorizing, capturing people, taking Christians, holding them hostages, asking for money and taking their lives. And the United States Army sent in the Marines. You remember the shores of Tripoli? That's where the Marines began. They began to defend the rights of innocent people who were on the seas of the Mediterranean, Europeans and Americans alike, because there were people taking innocent lives and terrorizing the rest of the world. You go back to the 6 and 800 AD, the Crusade period. History will tell you that Christians did not decide by the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church, the pontiff didn't say, I want you to go and I want you to destroy all Islamic people in the Middle East. It didn't happen that way. The Roman Church wasn't involved. It was individuals who got news back from their loved ones that were living in Jerusalem, living in Egypt. And they were there because they've been there ever since Christ was around. They have been in the Middle East and they were being wiped out killed, murdered, beheaded by Islamic terrorists. And so the knights of the Western world sold their property, mortgaged everything they had at their own expense, went and shed their blood to rescue those that were being murdered in the Middle East. Not a war against Islam, just to go and protect the innocent. That's the truth. You don't need to be embarrassed by the Crusades. It was simply self-defense and protecting the rights of those who were being slaughtered for no reason at all. Well, I'm taking longer than I thought. Regarding the criticism of the Inquisition, that's the second one. What about the burning of the witches in Europe and the Inquisition? And yes, that did happen. 
It did happen, and the Roman Catholic Church was really involved in that. But you got to know the Roman Catholic Church was two parts. There were the piety, and then there was the power. And the piety were the ones that went around the world, like Mother Teresa, and took the vow of poverty and gave their lives for others to share the hope and the gospel of Christ. There was the Church of Mercy, and then there was the Church of Money. And there were those that just showed mercy everywhere and, and took in the lost and the, and the, and the hungry and the, and the sick and the church of compassion and the church of control. And, and by the way, it was a brutal air. And was it right? No. But that's how you dealt with things that were unlawful. If you go back to ancient times, you can't redact that. It was a cruel, brutal time. Does that justify it? No. But read the statistics and read the context. Regarding the Christians of Western, the criticism of Western Christians, one of the things in social justice is, is so down on Christianity in the Western world is because we went out and colonialized the world. We went out and took all their wealth, took all their good things and left them penniless. That's not what history says. And you need to read the rest of the story on that. Just don't take one perspective that may be redacted read the whole story because let me tell you a little bit about compassion in the world the compassion of christ that brought liberation and emancipation globally there would not be things that are in the world today if it wasn't for christians like women who were footbound in china if it wasn't being liberated by missionaries like hudson taylor who knows whether they would still be footbound or the widows that were burned on the pyres of their husbands' cremation piles, liberated by missionaries like John Kerry so the widows didn't have to die by fire. Or the cannibalism tribal societies that ended, ended like in places like in Papua New Guinea because missionaries like Don Richardson went in and risked their life and brought civilization and hope and the hope of Christ. American slaves emancipated not just by a few people in the East Coast. The preachers of that day down in the South throughout America preached from the Bible Sunday after Sunday about emancipation and that this is not right for slavery. It was the church, if you read church history, that made the difference in the lives of people to change their bigotry and change their bias. Multitudes who suffered from plagues in the Black Plague as well as the plague in the first century people that had no faith would throw their family out into the streets when they found out they had the plague. The pagans would throw them out. And you know who would go and collect the sick people up? They were Christians. They were wealthy Christian women, wealthy Christian people who had come to Christ and risked their very life along with the very poor. And they nursed as many back as they could. And they stopped the spread of plagues. That was Christianity. It works. Well, let me end with this. The last reason... And this is purely logical. And I hope you can follow it. It's the undeniability of the scriptures. Undeniability. Based upon the premise of this. Based upon the premise on the fact that Jesus did rise from the dead. See, if Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which Pastor Dave showed you, and was born of the Virgin Mary which history recounts, was crucified and suffered under Pontius Pilate, which is historical, dead and buried. And then the proof is there that he rose again on the third day. And then the Bible says he ascended into heaven and he sat at the right hand of the Father. If that's all true, then by Jesus' actions, if he did that and that did happen and he did died and he rose again from the dead, 
and he did perform the miracles that are recorded in the scriptures and elsewhere, then his demonstration of being and having the divine attributes of God, omniscience, omnipotence, and eternal, just to name a few, declare that that is how you define God. Jesus is God. Okay? Amen. So if Jesus is God, as described in the Bible, now we're in circular reasoning, we're talking about what defines a God, then he is both righteous and truth. And that means that he can only speak truth. No lie. So if Jesus is God, and he also has a divine attribute of knowing everything, omniscience, then what he taught or intended to teach is true, because he could teach no lie. And he knew everything, so he couldn't claim ignorance. So if Jesus taught what was true, then Jesus taught that the entire Bible was inspired by simply saying that the creation of Adam and Eve, the beginning, is true. He quoted it as truth. He quoted Noah and the flood, Genesis 6 through 11, as true. He quoted Jonah and the whale as true. And these are the hardest things for most people to believe that are true. And they say they're just myths. He quoted the great tribulation and the second coming that is going to happen, as it says in Matthew 24. So if Jesus said all those things are true, then they're true. Amen. But here's where I want to end. My goal was to share with you an apologia, an argument for what you believe. And, and, I, and I hope I appealed to your mind and gave you some resources. But I, I, I'm more concerned about your heart. And if you've got a friend you're trying to share your faith with, maybe you've got some notes and maybe they've got some doubts, some reasons why they can't trust the Bible, and don't give them a sermon outline. Don't give them a book. Don't do that. Now sit down with them, like I said, in, in sharing point. And have a conversation. And be honest. I don't know the answer to that. But ask him this, what is the first biggest hurdle in your head that keeps you from wanting to trust the Bible? And then do your homework and, and do your study and, and, and ask for God to give you wisdom and insight and have a conversation and be humble and, and be honest when you don't know it. But, but, but try to answer the question. And let's just say you give a reasonable response why their doubt is something that they don't need to continue to doubt. Then you go on to the next question. And eventually, after who knows how long, if there's no more head hurdles, then it comes down to the heart, and, and they no longer have no hurdles here. And then it gets down to a thing of the will. And only God can change a heart. But you continue to have that relationship. You continue to pray for them. You continue to have conversations. And, you know, and God has to change a heart. If you're here, and let me end on this. If you're here and you're saying, I just can't trust God. It's not about my head. It's just, I don't trust him. It's a feeling. You know, and why don't you trust? Has he let you down? Has another Christian hurt you? And if another Christian has hurt you, I just want to say, I'm sorry. We do those kind of things. We don't, we don't want to, but we're human. I'm not given an excuse. We're accountable for our actions, but we do hurt people. But if you have a group of strawberries and one's bad, you don't throw them all out. You know, don't throw out the truth 
because of one of us that you know, hurt you. I, I'm sorry. And, and if God let you down, you lost a loved one early at age and, or some tragedy happened in your life. I've got to say, yeah, God could have stopped evil, but he gave us a free will. And with free will comes consequences and evil. And that's a whole other subject that we don't have time to talk about. But God said, I will take those things that have been bad in your life and I have a plan to turn them for good. If you'll come and you'll trust me. Yeah, I, I hope that God has addressed some of the things of your head. And I hope that, you know, your heart is open to exploring the reliability of the scriptures. Let me just pray for you as we close today. Let me just pray a blessing over you. God, I ask that the words of my mouth would not only be acceptable in your sight, but that your Holy Spirit would activate them in each of our hearts. So I pray, God, that you will do that. And then may you continue to bless us and keep us. May you continue to lift up your face upon us. May you continue to be gracious to us and shed your light upon us and grant us your peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, exists to help everyone take their next step closer to Jesus. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.